I'm beginning to wonder now if this is the greater reality. We live in a, in a narrow field of reality, but I wonder if beings within the multiverse are going to extend their hands in friendship. Go into the old growth forest, sit sit on a mountaintop, and do do a heroic dose of psilocybin. I stood in between this guy and this woman, and he goes, "Who the f are you?" And I said, "I'm your worst nightmare. I'm the person that's going to stop you." This is the wildest interview that I've ever had. I, and with Paul Stamets, I mean, what, what, what are you going to expect, Matt? But this is wild. It was the most engaging, it, you know, and, and if you get to those wild parts, keep going because it all connects. It's such an incredible story. Paul Stamets is an inspiration. And this is from Our Future. The online conference is free. It was this year, this January in 2021, and it's going to be again this year in 2022 in January. It's free to sign up. There's a link down below enjoy the interview can you share with us the story of how fungi perfecti began and what led you to start your micro entrepreneurial journey that's a great question and i have a really good answer um, that i think is a model uh, for a lot of entrepreneurs to follow it's not a formula for success um, but in my case um, it it can be so it could be a formula for success for other people uh, but I have a lot of caveats to add once I describe this. Um, so I was um, became a teacher's assistant um, in my senior year at the Evergreen State College, helping Dr. Michael Bug um, teach a class. And since I had cultivation skills, we had a DEA license, and I was using a scanning electron microscope. And um, because Michael had a DEA license, then I need to have fresh material through the winter time and spring, when psilocybin mushrooms are not growing naturally, we were able to make the argument that we had to cultivate them. <laughs> so I cultivated a lot of psilocybin mushroom species in the laboratories under a DEA approved license. Um, I was hyper paranoid because I we had spontaneous inspections and I was a long haired hippie. So I fit the stereotype of somebody who, you know, would be suspicious and, uh, in the eyes of the government. Uh, but I long ago adopted the mantra, uh, nature supplies, I don't. And, and the big thing about psilocybin mushrooms, one of the reasons why I don't supply them is there's karma involved. I inherit somebody else's trip and their experience. If someone has a bad trip and I gave them the mushrooms, well, I'm part of that bad trip, right? Wow. So I feel a really strong responsibility for the psychological well-being of anybody taking a sacrament that I would produce, uh, and I'm not a skilled therapist, you know. I so um, my own personal use of them is is a private spiritual matter. Um, but I long ago realized that these were such powerful medicines that I didn't do that. So I cultivated a lot of psilocybin mushrooms in a laboratory at the Evergreen State College and used the specimens for the scanning electron microscope. Well, they started growing gourmet mushrooms, oyster and shiitake. My mother was much happier because <laughs> she, she could eat those. She, she wouldn't touch the, touch the magic mushrooms. But so Michael asked me to be his assistant. And then after upon graduation, he asked me to, uh, to be an adjunct faculty member at the Evergreen State College teaching several classes that were ongoing because the classes were very popular. But I had a skill set that Michael didn't have. Um, and I specialized in the taxonomy of psilocybin mushrooms. So my focus was that he's an organic chemist. Mm. He actually wrote the protocol that accurately identified psilocybin. He was called in an expert witness um, in many court cases to basically throw out the government's case because they had flawed analytical techniques. So he wrote a paper to accurately identify psilocybin and psilocin in mushrooms, published that paper, and then said, well, since I'm correcting the DEA on their techniques, you know, they'd likely be favorable to me get a license, and indeed they were. So, um, so of course, I didn't teach about growing psilocybin mushrooms in my class. I taught about gourmet mushrooms, oyster and shiitake and portobellos and maitake, et cetera. But as most everybody knows, the, the um, techniques uh, are really parallel. <laughs> so you just substitute the species and you kind of get the information anyhow. So I, I was teaching this class, and I had to come up with a syllabus. Mike asked me to, hey, you know, we need a syllabus for the class. So I very quickly, the night or two nights before, 
wrote the syllabus for the class. And it just came out of nowhere. I'm in front of the class of about 30 people. And I said, here's a syllabus. And it actually looks like a table of contents for a book. And in fact, I'm going to use this to write a new book. And if you buy a pre-publication order of the book for six bucks, I promise you, I'll send you a copy of the book. So that was interesting. And then because labs, the laboratory, uh, there's a kind of called the czar of lab stores. He, I give him a great, great credit because every time I wanted to order some Petri dishes, I, I'd be interrogated to the nth degree. And I just think he just liked wielding his power to control me because I was in a hurry. I had to get things done. I wanted to order this lab equipment. And he would ask me, why do you need it? How are you going to use it? I'm going, this is ridiculous. So I decided, okay, if I got you know 10 or 20 cases of Petri dishes, I could probably get them wholesale as a reseller. So I did. And so in the next class, you know, people are asking, or towards the end of the class, where you can get these resources. So I created a one-page you know, laboratory supply sheet that would have laboratory equipment specific to the class. Okay, so then I, I so taught the class and I had this lab sheet and I said, oh, I might as well put down copies, pre-orders pre of the book on this little, you know, one-page flyer advertising my new mail order business, which I just created on the spot. And so I ended up creating three points so pre-publication copies of a book I had not written based on table contents, a one-page flyer with equipment specific to mushroom cultivation, and the book when it came out then advertised the other two, the mail order businesses and the classes. So I created a triangle of literally robbing Peter to pay Paul because I was borrowing. I got about $5,000 in pre-orders from my students um, and that allowed me to print the catalog that allowed me to send the catalog out to, to have more people order pre-publication copies of the book and they'd order the equipment and it would also advertise the classes. And so I started spinning this little, you know, sort of permaculture profit wheel. Yes. You know, faster and faster. And, um, and, and it, it works sort of, and what I want to say about that is I, um, I faced a lot of challenges in my life. And um, the attitude that I had, especially when I was younger, is every challenge will make me stronger. Mm. And so it's like exercise. I set chokers in the woods in a, log, a logging company for three years. I had long hair, long hair, hippie. They wouldn't hire me for 21 days. I showed up at 4.30 every morning with my quirks and my hard hat. I was the only long hair that was in this company of 200 people, the big logging company outside of Darrington, Washington. And I figured that somewhat, eventually one of these yahoos is gonna get drunk and not gonna show up for work. And sure enough, you know, they, they noticed that this guy is there every morning at 4.30. And then one of the people said, you don't have a snowball chance in hell of getting hired. You're a long haired hippie, we're never gonna hire you. Well, a skyline operation, the most dangerous operation, um, you know, in the logging community, um, it's, it's, uh, they bring massive, you know, three, three log loads sometimes off of skylines a mile and a half long, along high up in the air. That's why it's called a skyline, um, of canyons. And then one of the guys on that crew just didn't show up over and over again. And so the, the crew said, listen, I, we want to hire this guy. He's there every day. He's dependable. So they hired me after 21 days of me showing up at four 30 in the morning. So I'm telling you this because that was my summer job when I was at the Evergreen State College. And so in June, May or June, then I would take off into the woods, work through the summer, you know, until, and then when the snow begins, you know, uh, in the mountains, they shut down the logging, uh, the logging operations. Mm -hmm. So I timed it pretty well for the middle of September and then I came out of the woods, uh, went back to school. So I, so those challenges, I saw as opportunities for me to prove to myself um, that, you know, frankly, I, I am strong enough. Um, so I also started in the martial arts when I was about 14 years of age. And um, 
and persisted in that for 30, 40 years, have two black belts, had ran several schools, literally in thousands of fights, thousands of fights. And, uh, and I can only, I can, I will only admit to losing two. This, this, this one Samoan guy, I've never seen a neck so big. And the type of fighting we would do is, is full on, you know, it's illegal now. They don't, they don't let you practice this. It's, it's like a mixed martial arts fighting uh, today, but basically there's too many legal liabilities. Um, but then I got my first black belt in Taekwondo. I started in Gojuru, Shotokan, Shitoru, Aikido, uh, got my first black belt in Taekwondo, uh, and then my second black belt in Hwarongdo, which is far more advanced as a martial art based on the feminine. It's all very soft blocks. And then at the point of contact, it's, it's masculine. So everything is soft, and then at the point of contact, you become masculine. Because if you're real tense all the time, you're burning up energy. And so the, the art of Huarong Do is to take the feminine power of draining energy from an opponent. And most people who haven't been in fights don't realize this. You only have stamina for about five or five to seven minutes. Um, and you get exhausted. And if you can exhaust the other person just by soft blocking, then it doesn't matter if they're stronger than you. They're, they're tired. And you're not. So, so it's a beautiful martial arts because it's a combination of both masculine and feminine. So I, I tell you these stories because this has been a, my philosophy of life, the Aikido approach mm. to business and life and, and, and life in general. You know, a lot of us men suffer from testosterone poisoning. Mm. Um, we're full of lots of steroids uh, when we're growing and we have this not a death wish, but, you know, we do extreme sports. You know, we don't know if we're really worthy. Um, all those strange psychologies of the father, you know, your peer group, you know, and all that stuff, that all comes into play. And so you need an outlet. So I, I took up hand gliding and, and, and because I had a fear of heights, so I took up hand gliding. And I was very much into the martial arts ever since I was 14. So I was a great follower of Bruce Lee, and and um, and so I, I, then that martial arts gravitated to me. But what I loved about it so much is, and I'll tell you a really quick story. Um, by the head of the head of the one school that I was at, he would always because I was a long-haired hippie, you know, kind of a nice guy, and and uh, and so he would love to to would have bikers come into the studio who want to fight a black belt. And it's just, I mean, these, sometimes these guys are wired on amphetamines and they just, they have this attitude and very aggressive. And so it turns out the head instructor is not wise for them to ever fight somebody in front of their students. They have too much to lose. Mm. If they make a mistake, they lose face. But, but it's a great thing for the junior black belts to, oh, here. And so the, so this one time this big biker dude came in and um, he was very pugnacious. He was just seething blood vessels, you know, like pissed off. And so my head instructor said, listen, you know, said, Paul, we have another one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, and I have to do what the, the head instructor does. And so we, we paired off and we said, listen, it was just a few rules. You, you got to bow. Okay. And I, go, I don't want to buy. So listen, this is our studio. It's just a matter of respect. You bow. And after you bow, you can do anything, you know, anything you want. So he's just ready and he re regrudgingly, you know, came to attention and, and bowed to me. I bowed to him. Always, a, you're a senior, you bow second. The first person bows, bows first if they're a junior to you. And then he just attacked me, just ran after me and attacked me. I'm just viciously wild swinging and, you know, I'm blocking, I'm blocking back and forth. And, and um, you know, after a while, you block five, 10, 20 times and, you realize this guy's really trying to hurt you. I mean, it's not like a camaraderie fight with a brother, you know, you're trying to get, get the point. No, this guy is actually trying to hurt me. Hmm. And so it became really obvious, you know, all the students were, were watching, you know, and about 30 or 40 students there. I'm the junior black belt. And I look over to the head instructor and he goes, I goes, Oh, okay. <laughs> now it's my turn because it's just, not right for me to take him out right away. You know, he wants to come and express himself. So, so he, then I got the, got the go ahead and block, 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 spun kick, 
hit this guy in the temple, bam, went down, put my hand on his throat, put my finger into his eyeball so I could pop his eyeball and pull out his trachea at the same time. And he's down on the ground and he, you know, he was stunned. And once you get into the person's eyeball, you know, I don't know, it, believe me, trust me, it's the number one thing you want to defend, not beyond your testicles, man, is, is your eyeballs, right? So I'm ready to pop his eyeball, had his trachea. He, and when you stick your finger in the eyeball, I mean, you just don't lightly put it in there. You put it into a point where, you know, you're, you're going to extract his eyeball. And so he just lived. It was in total fear. This guy realized he's ready to lose his, his sight. And, uh, and then I, and then he, he was in, he, he basically gave up. And then, then I said, oh, okay. I stood up and I held my hand to lift, to help him up. And he started crying mm. to see that strength con combined with kindness blew him away mm. and it changed his life. He entered the school the, the next day sober and he came up and I said, well, this, 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 this yellow belt here, her name is, I think it was Kathy. She's eight years old. You have to bow to Kathy. Mm. And he looked at me and I said, yeah, we do things here by rank, not by sex, not by age, not by size, by skill. Mm. And so I said, Kathy is going to teach you, you know, your first kata, you know? And, uh, and so, and the guy went all the way to Brown Belt, totally changed his life. Yeah. Became the big biker dude, and now that became a mentor to his community. Mm. And so, um, anyhow, that was. Um, then I realized that the important thing is is strength and kindness combined with courage, mm. and that's the thing that I think all of us need to aspire. And what psilocybin mushrooms have done for me is make me courageous, and giving me the self assuredness that if you follow kindness and courage that you know other people will follow you you speak the truth and you are in it for the greater commons of benefit of building a community of standards then people will go i like this person i want to support them so it is very strange i have two worlds i have my martial arts community and I, my mushroom community is like a Venn diagram, and very rarely will they ever intersect. <laughs> once in a while, they, they once in a while they would. And the people in the mushroom community goes, "I can't believe you are the same Paul Stamets," because <laughs> like because I I am I think I'm a nice guy, but I'm a ferocious fighter, and so I have a, a different attitude when I flip the switches. I say, but then after, after that, I'm you know I extend my hand in, in kindness, and and I say, hey, you want to learn that technique? I'll show it to you. And that's when the people get really excited, right? You're not just overwhelming them. You're actually extending your hand, and now I'll teach you how to do this. And they go, yeah, that was extremely effective. I want to know how to do it. So anyhow, that's that's one of the things now. I, I know I'm waxing a little bit away from the mushroom scene, but, but that was a center axis of my being in realizing that it doesn't matter how big and, and there are bullies out there that we all know about is so important that we stand up to them. Mm. And I've had many examples, um, even at the Telluride mushroom conference, it is an amazing situation where this woman was, we were, we were in a locked, locked hotel, key entry only. And Andy Weil and Gary Linkoff and myself and a bunch of other people from Telluride Mushroom Conference were all in a sauna together, about 12 of us. This woman r ran in with all of her clothes, shaking in fear. And her boyfriend was in there and she couldn't talk. And she was like so afraid. And well, the door swung open and this really big guy came and he had been trying to rape her. And so she's in the sauna with us, we're all naked. Now, because I already had my black belt, you know, and been in many situations, I've been trained. Um, he started coming come towards her. I stood up and I stood between her and him. Now I've had a, I've had a moment of being a coward. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deny this. I, with my brother John one time, 
I didn't step, step up. And after that experience, I swear this would never happen again. So I stood in between this guy and this woman, and he goes, who the are you? And I said, I'm your worst nightmare. I'm the person that's going to stop you, and I'm going to have a good time doing it. And he was like, I was really self-assured. I was like, I'm ready. And uh, he goes, I'm going to go get my gun. So he leaves the sauna, and I look around at everybody in there, and I said, okay, we have active aggression and attempted rape. He's announced he's going to get his gun. We have about 10 seconds to follow this guy before we lose track of him. If we lose track of him, we're all in trouble. Mm. Who's with me? All the men froze. Not a single man stood up. But this woman stood up, and she goes, I'm with you, Paul. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I looked, at, I looked at her with deep appreciation. And I have to say, I looked with pretty strong disdain at everybody else who were frozen in fear. You know, they were afraid also. So we tracked this guy, you know, half naked down the hallways. And sure enough, he went out to his car and he's going through his trunk. And there's a pay phone. And I called 911, and, and the operator says, you know, I said, there's an attempted rape. We're here at this location. We need an officer here right away. And I said, and they go, where is, where is this? Where's the perpetrator right now? I said, he's about 12 inches away from my phone right now. I'm talking to him. It's on the other side of the glass, and he says he has a gun, you know? And it's like, oh, my God. So the police came, and the boyfriend that was in the sauna came out to, to, with his girlfriend, um, finally. And, uh, and he had long hair, so the police came and they arrested him. And so I'm like, wait a second, you got the wrong person. He's the boyfriend of the girlfriend that was being raped. It's this guy over here. Okay, so they arrest him, they throw him in, in jail. My posters all over Telluride. The last thing the guy says, I'm gonna come back and kill you. I'm going, wow, right in front of the police officers, he's saying he's gonna come back and kill me. They found the gun, they arrested him, they put him in jail. Well, Telluride at that time only had three or four police officers. Mm. And so the next day, I'm giving a keynote talk at a dark theater. So I call up in the afternoon because we wanted to press charges. We were told to call the next day. And they said, I'm sorry, they released him. I go, how could you release this guy? They said, there was an accident on the freeway. And according to Colorado state law, you could not leave a prisoner unattended in jail. So they were short staffed. So they had to release them. So William Padilla, Trad Cotter, all of you who've given talks in a darkened theater, I had to give a talk knowing that my posters all over town, this guy is going to could shoot me into a dark audience. And I don't care how many black belts you have, you can't stop a bullet from six feet. Beyond, beyond six, six to 10 feet, is no, there's no, in a dark theater, you'd never even see it. So anyhow, that was, um, that was an intersection of my martial arts and mushroom scene. But going back to creating this business, um, it's, it, I only am here today through the kindness and generosity of other people. Hmm. There's, I, paid, I paid every bill for 10 years, every utility bill, you know, every phone bill on the date of disconnection. Not a week before on the date of disconnection. I was chasing checks. I didn't have time to balance my checkbook. I packed 30,000 boxes by myself. Hmm. So you can, you know, you know, so I would call up the public utility, uh, a district, you know, 360-426-8283 and, uh, and 801 on the date of disconnection. And, uh, and there was a pool of, of employees after about two years on the day of disconnection around the phone saying Paul Stamos is going to call and they'd bet whether he's going to call or not. And at 801, the phone would ring. And after a while I would hear this cheering going on in the background. I had no idea what it was going on. <laughs> and they really quickly learned don't bet against Paul Stamos. You know, he's, yeah. he's <laughs> but I had to stretch my cash flow because my, my lawyer told me if you give official notification, it's illegal for them to cut off your bill. Mm. So I thought, okay, I could, I could use that information. Uh, so, I mean, but then, you know, I just put myself out there and, um, I, you know, I, I have, um, I just refuse to, 
to quit. Mm. Stamina. And um, my parents, my mother, not my mother, but my father said, you'd never be successful in life growing mushrooms. You should work for IBM or General Electric. You know, and so one of my, you know, parents, even though they're well-intended, they can give some of the worst advice, you know, and the best advice is not to follow their advice, you know, follow your passion and your interest. Because it was never to me about money. It was about science. It was about knowledge, exploring this underground universe of mycelium and mushrooms. And because they were forbidden fruit, you know, I was even more attracted to them because they so many. And when I go to the libraries, the University of Washington, all the journals that anything on psilocybin mushrooms had been razored out. Mm. And so that even made me more interested. All the library books were just ripped apart with anything on psilocybin mushrooms. So you couldn't get the information. So I thought, wow, if there's that much interest in this. And I have that interest. Well, there's a shared community there that are, are hungry for knowledge. So I think finding something that's eclectic where people are hungry for knowledge, where the knowledge is being controlled or restricted by gatekeepers, mm. whether my access to petri dishes from the lab stores or the library books from very conservative mycologists, many of whom were opposed to me for decades. Mm. When I first went to the North American Mycological Association conference, I met Gary Linkoff. It's like I had a force field of repulsion. I'd walk into a crowd and there'd be people would just be pushed away. They didn't want to be seen with me because I was a long haired hippie and he must be into magic mushrooms. And that was a foreboding subject. And so that's really interesting to me that, that it was so disturbing and unsettling to the status quo. And that me and I knew that Sultan mushrooms was so helpful to me and they were so good on so many levels that I felt it was important for me to stand up for psilocybin mushrooms, stand up for the earth, stand up for nature, um, and, um, you know, push up, push against these people, Yeah. you know, because the yep. more they pushed me down, the more I wanted to push forward. I realized that their suppression is only an indication of how valuable this knowledge is. So now we have a worldwide revolution. In the from the from the mycelial underground that's sweeping the planet, and I think we just only have begun to tap into the resources and the opportunities. These are these are I've just explained many times. You know these are network-based organisms. They're externalized brains. They're externalized stomachs. They're externalized lungs. You know these these you know we are descendants of mycelium, and uh, the mycelium chose the underground route. But these are network-based organisms that have within them, by their own design, an innate ability to adapt and to store information and have a form of intelligence that gives us the opportunities to use them to, to have new discoveries, either discoveries they've already have and we're rediscovering them, or we challenge them with a xenobiotic you know, toxin, something that a human created, to see if they can elocute a response. And in doing so, once they produce an enzyme or a new antibiotic, that becomes encoded inside the, the, the DNA of, of the fungus. And so you, in a sense, can vaccinate these strains and educate them uh, to xenobiotic threats that heretofore have not been encountered, but because they're network-based design, they're very adept at coming up with clever solutions. I think that I'm going to be reviewing this <laughs> because I, I grew up doing judo and that really resonates with, with a lot of my childhood and a lot of my teenage years. And yeah, I, I've got two boys too. And what you were just saying about, uh, I've got a 14 year old boy. <laughs> so that just, I'm seeing it happen. Yeah. Yeah. You should tell them, don't go near mushrooms. And because that, that way he'll go, oh, I think I'll go to near mushrooms. So you have to use reverse psychology on a 14-year-old, right? Yeah. This is way too dangerous. 
<laughs> with him, it's either that or it's music. As, as long as there's like a guitar in the equation, he's, he's, he'll listen. <laughs> okay. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I want to, you know, the, I occasionally have epiphanies. The, the, I call them the epiphanies of the obvious. Um, it's, and um, so you think about the extent of the mycelial networks throughout the entire planet. You know, they're, they are the construct of the food, of the, of, of the food chains and literally create the ecosystems that allow us to flourish. Um, and we know that mycelium is sensitive to light, you know, and most people listening probably know that you really can't grow mushrooms unless you have light. The mycelium grows fine in the dark, but with the exception of button mushrooms and maybe enoki a, a little bit, um, all, all practically all cultivated mushrooms require light. So without light exposure, mushrooms won't form. So mushrooms form in response to, uh, you know, after the mycelium grows out and there's not enough uh, nutrition, uh, you know, rain, which is a drop in temperature, uh, the mycelium comes up to near the surface of the soil since it's moisture, exhales carbon dioxide, inhales oxygen, yeah. uh, and and uh, and there's a drop in temperature because of the rain, so lowering temperature, and the fourth one being light. So without light, then the mushrooms won't form. So I'm, I'm thinking about this. That's really interesting. It's poetic that you know, something growing in the dark requires light in order to reproduce, and. Hmm. I think about these, these, the mother mycelium and how beneficial it is uh, to, in governing the microbiomes. And there are successions of guilds of fungi cooperating with bacteria. And now we know that these fungal networks are super highways for bacteria. And there's yeah. an extraordinary videos that have been discovered recently showing the, my, the, my, the bacteria traveling literally hundreds of times faster along the, the cords of mycelium as opposed to just, you know, whether the flagellologist, you know, just buzzing around without direction. But I think about these things a lot. And then an article came out in an obscure journal just about a year ago, I think. And it really just made me have this, the epiphany of the obvious. And what this person found out, because we were looking at blue light, red light, temperature, gas exchange, you know, um, you know, all these other influences on the mushroom life cycle. But this person decided to use sound and using sound waves to see how sound would influence the growth of mycelium. Now, in our laboratories, I'm, I'm very much into electronica, burning man, <laughs> world beat. <laughs> I'm a burner, right? <laughs> I, I, I just love, I mean, I don't mind music going all night at Burning Man because I, to me it's heart thumping, you know, it's just, I love it. So I've always had really excellent music in my laboratories. Mm. A lot of world beat. And I'm sorry folks, country music doesn't work. <laughs> Opera doesn't work, oh my God. <laughs> but really good world beat, uh, African fusion Middle East, um, you know, um, Amani, from Desert Dwellers, you know, that, that type of music is really fantastic. I think for mycelium, at least I always believe that. So this article came out that was so interesting uh, because it found that low frequency sound waves dramatically ex 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 uh, encourage mycelium to grow, uh, dramatically. And so it was able to zero down into the exact frequency. And I, I don't want to speak incorrectly, so I do have some uh, some frequencies in, in mind, but you know, I, I need to go back and check my notes before I speak about those with, with any specificity. But basically, it's this really thunder low bass drum. These are long waves, and so long wave sounds travel longer throughout the environment. And so it dawned on me oh my god, this may mean that drum circles, uh, indigenous people, uh, pagans, people celebrating a harvest, a wedding, the birth of a child, they're all coming together in community and they're drumming. And as they're drumming, 
these long wave sound frequencies are literally going into the mycelial networks that are underneath your feet, that are in your immediate surroundings. The mycelium is like strings on a guitar, like strings on a piano or a violin. They are reverberating from the thunderous beating of humans celebrating nature and life is causing the mycelial networks to grow. And as the mycelium is growing, it's adding more, giving more nutrients, it's helping all these other life cycles. You know, there's more potential fruits, berries, nuts. Uh, so the emanates throughout the ecosystem. And so I realized, oh my gosh, this may be actually a feedback loop. When you're celebrating in community with music, you are actually communicating with the mycelial networks and every one of those fibers are resonating from the sound waves and they're responding with their acknowledgement and their, their fruitful acknowledgement and being able to provide you with greater sustenance. And I think, whoa, when I had that epiphany, and again, it's an obvious epiphany, I've never heard anyone else ever talk about this. So I think this intersection not only of light and carbon dioxide and oxygen and temperature and water, but the influence of the, our thunderous footsteps upon the soil resonates a communication to the underground mycelial community that knows that we are there, that acknowledges our existence, that wakes up to our presence. And if we just reciprocally and respectfully reinvest into the mycelial networks that are around us, I think they give us um, the rewards of, of, of their replenishment because they understand that we are involved in the cycle of life with them. Yeah, I mean, what, you're, what I'm hearing and, and, and what, I'm, what this is causing to cascade within me is this, that, that music, if music is mycelial, then immediately I start thinking that thoughts and the way we communicate thoughts and the way we spread ideas are mycelial, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think we're all in bio, biomolecular communication and, bi, and biophysical communication uh, with our ecosystem. And then I postulated mycelium running that these are the neural networks of nature. Uh, this, is this, this could be the construct of a guy in consciousness but more, even more so than that, the universal consciousness. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, I have said some very extraordinary things in the past. I'm really happy that a lot of these have now, quote, unquote, taken root. You know, um, so I'm not always so, so wrong. But here's one for you. I'm, you know, I've, I've tripped on psilocybin mushrooms maybe about 100 times. I don't know, lost count, who's counting a lot, infrequently, you know, every few months. Uh, but I like these heroic journeys. And it's really dawned on me that it's not altering consciousness. Hmm. It's, in, it's increasing consciousness. It's opening up, even all this Huxley talked about the floodgates of the senses being opened up. I mean, and people over thousands of years have talked about the, the unanimity of being, not using the word unanimity probably, but the, the unity of being, the oceanic feelings. But I, I'm beginning to wonder now if this is the greater reality. We live in a, in a narrow field of reality. And what psilocybin mushrooms do is give you a glimpse into a one giant consciousness, one great spirit. And moreover, this may able, be able, you know, with good training and understanding, with humility, the kindness and courage, but I wonder if beings within the multiverse are gonna extend their hands in friendship and that this is going to be something that is gonna be the next giant quantum leap in the evolution of the human species. We live in a multiverse of consciousness, what I call the microverse. It is so, reality is so much greater 
than our discussion right now and the people listening to us. We are focused to the exclusion of other stimuli. Mm. And what psilocybin mushrooms do is open up, you know, your receptors to all that is, is there, not, not hallucinating, but you're actually sensing and feeling what is present. Mm. And that presence is omnipotent. And so we may not have the language skills to adequately describe this now, but I would like to say, mark my words, psilocybin mushrooms may be the, a gateway into a greater consciousness of being. Not one that we are creating, that we are a part of, and that this is something around us all the time, but we're so ignorant and we're so, such children, and we have such hubris and ego that interferes uh, with the quality of life that could we could be living and that is in existence right now. There's a greater existence all around us. And I think um, understanding that it's uh, ego shattering because uh, um, why would you be mad at your, at your, your older brother? You know, why, why would you mad, be mad at your mother? You know, why would you be mad at your friend? Because they, they put something up on Facebook that you didn't like. All those things look really small, you know, and uh, and they yet that's what we focus on is our our Instagram, you know, and trolls. I mean, it's such a departure from a greater, bigger truth. Yeah. So I think for you, when you're fighting actual, you know, people in your life, you're fighting actual things that are obstacles. You know, what I mean? you're actually overcoming them. And then the, the digital world has become so loud. What would you say to someone who's, you know, 18, who is looking around at the world saying, the world's crazy, everyone's angry, and all these obstacles are standing in the way, when you, from your perspective, have seen it go from, you know, you're this locked-in definition of this, this hippie, and this is an illegal, awful thing, and it's flipped entirely, in so, not everywhere, but in so many ways. It's like, what, what would you say to that person who sees a limitation? Well, I mean, I don't want to make the word, I use the word recommendations. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> but, but circumstantially for an 18 year old, um, this is going to sound a little strange to some people, but not strange to others. Go to Burning Man. Go into the old growth forest. Mm. Sit, sit on a mountaintop and do, do a heroic dose of psilocybin. Think about your life. Think about your ancestors. Think about your descendants. Think about your destiny. What do you want to, you know, it is your turn to have a voice. We need to have leaders. We need leadership. We need the voices of young leaders, micro-warriors that are defending the planet, defending the ecosystem, who are coming together and rejoicing in our multi-ethnicity and our biodiversity. That is our strength. And to lose the rhetoric and to reach across to people who may not share uh, our views. This is why the, the research I've been doing on bees is just so phenomenal. You know, we publish in Nature. We're still in the top 1% of all articles ever published in Nature showing that we that reishi mycelium reduced viruses in bees, in one case more than 45,000 times with one treatment. Now we have new research that doubles the, the lifespan of bees. Who's against the bees? No one, right? Conservatives and liberals, you can use the bees and mushrooms as a bridge across the divide. Yeah. That's, that's an example. Let's build find more bridges across the divide where we have a shared destiny and interest and in food biosecurity, farm security, you know, hay is pollinated by bees. We all know, know what nuts and berries are, but it's, they're so fundamental to our food security and for farmers' economic sustainability that you can use the mushroom to bee bridge, bee mushroomed. <laughs> you can use the bee mushroom bridge as an arc of communication to reach across the aisle of the people uh, who are on the opposite end of the political spectrum because everyone's living in their little bubbles and if they don't 
get find a narrative that communicates across the divide, then there will be no bridge. Ways. Are there any things that were uh, that were like early wins that that helped you keep going? Because that's such a a difficult time period. Like when you're chasing bill to bill like that. I I'm nearing the end of that right now in my own journey, and it's such a it's like coming up for air, and you're like. I can breathe deeper than I ever thought I could breathe, you know. <laughs> and um, well, was- you know, I, I was on I was on food stamps. I was on, uh, um, uh, you know, employment security be- uh, benefits. You know, um, it's really important to pay back to the commons. Mm. Um, I had I called them angels, but you know, I was, at one point I had um, everything was being shut down. The, the bank, you know, was called in my short-term loans or 90-day notes. They were not really credit lines. They were just, and I was late on repaying them. The power was being shut off. The phones were being shut off. Everything was being shut off, you know. I was being shut down. And I had given a, a talk in, in Santa Barbara, I think, and I met a person who wanted to come visit me, um, an elderly gentleman, and he came to visit me. And um, it was on the weekend. Um, and I had a young family and, and just before he left, he goes, you're really hurting, aren't you financially? You know, and, you know, I wasn't too proud to admit the truth. I said, yes, I am. And this is in 1980, 1984. And then, you know, the next day I was facing a disaster and I didn't want him to be around because he was leaving that night. And um, so he said, here, and he gave me a check for $50,000. Oh, my word. I didn't ask for it. He, he gave it to me. And um, because of that, my business survived. So I'm very much interested in passing it forward. <coughs> so that is important to me is a payback. So um, I want to pay back his generosity and I have been paying back, you know, the generosity other people have extended to me. I, I've been paying it forward. So anyhow, I have, I don't know if these life stories are going to be useful or not, but I have one more life story and then I got to go. I'm in love with women warriors. I mean, I'm, I just find them to be so interesting and attractive, you know, that's sort of feminine, um, you know, kindness and, you know, all the wonderful thing about women, but also that strength uh, and kick-ass women just are really interesting to me. But me too. Uh, I have lots of reasons. For say- I have lots of reasons for saying that. I build up not just, you know, just an academic enterprise, but from practical experience. So, um, and I, I, I can't get into all these stories, but here's just one that's, I think, is a life lesson for, for us all. Um, I was out on my boat, and I have a, you know, at the time it was about, a, you know, 18-foot boat with a 100-horsepower motor or something, and I'm out in the Puget Sound. And um, the really big uh, part of the Puget Sound, if the Puget Sound is fairly narrow, but in this space, it was about five miles across. I'm, I'm going from point A to point B, and I see this boat that's obviously stranded, and these all these teenagers are waving their hands at me. So I went, oh, okay. You know, good boats, boatsmanship, you need to go over and see what's happening. So I go over to this boat, and um, they, we ran out of gas. We ran out of gas. Uh. Do you have any gas? And I, and I go, well, no, I'm, all my, ga- my tanks were internal, so there's really no way of me pumping gas. And, and, it, and they said, well, we, we give us a tow. Now there's four boys and four girls. I would estimate their ages were about 18 to 20. You know, it was the middle of summertime. And I said, you ran out of gas. I, you know, I said, okay, and whose boat is this? And so I talked to the guy who had the boat. He said, yeah, the gas gauges, you know, it's just, not working or whatever the case may be. I said, okay, I will give you a tow, but only under one condition. 
And they said, okay, what, what condition? Well, so there's eight of you here and I want to have 10 random acts of kindness from each one of you. Love it. So, I mean, there's eight of them, right? So that's 80 time return on my investment to go out of my way to give you a toe. They kind of like, yeah, okay, sure. This is, no, but I want you to raise your hand and swear to each other that you will give 10 random acts of kindness to total strangers in the next year. And the girls immediately raise our hands. Like, 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 sure, this is a great, you know, lesson from an elder, you know, to a younger people. So I said, I want you to say, I will give 10 random acts of kindness the next year to, to strangers. Uh, and the girls raised their hand and the boys were, oh, I'm not gonna do this guy's telling me what to do. And it's like, okay, I throttled up my engine and I started to drive away. And the girls were punching their boyfriend saying, wait, wait, <laughs> a little, little bravado here. So I circle back around and I go, well, are you, are you guys ready? And each one of the girls were grabbing their boyfriends like, you better do this or I'm gonna hate you forever. <laughs> And so they all raised their hand and they promised to give me, you know, 10 random acts of kindness in the next year. And it, it, they would never, the guys would never have done it. Um, but the women were wiser and they forced their boyfriends to do it. And I think that was a pretty good, you know, hopefully pretty good return on my investment. But I thought also that's really interesting that men's egos oftentimes get in the way of good decision-making. So I think the, the, this, uh, this hubris and bravado that men sometimes don't pay attention. And I think it's biological, I really do. We're not just male or female, we're all blends of both, of course, you know, we're on a spectrum. Uh, but at the further margins of those extremes, I think there is a stereotype or a type that conforms to this narrative that I'm speaking. And so I think um, what I like about the mycelium is that it's feminine, it's subtle, it's oftentimes speaks softly, but it speaks with such great resonant wisdom that it's important for us to pay attention. All women too, uh, but especially important for men to pay, pay attention to the, the wise words of wisdom of women. Okay, that's all I wanted to say. Well, I, I hope everybody is um, happy and healthier, and stay stay healthy, stay safe. You know, and um, live live long and sporulate. <laughs> if you liked that, well, I'm going to be releasing more and more from this year's Our Future 2021 to warm up for the 2022 Our Future Conference, which has even more speakers talking about their most hopeful and inspiring vision for the future. That's what everyone's talking about. And they're, they're talking about it from their own perspective, their own niche, with their own experience. We have people from all walks of permaculture sharing from experience, decades of experience, pioneers of permaculture. You're not going to want to miss this. Click the link. We have over 40 speakers already confirmed. We're probably going to have close to 70. It's going to be a full week of short 20 to 30 minute talks on their visions for the future. So get inspired, get hopeful, get excited because our future is coming up again this January. Start your year off right, positive, inspired, hopeful, and excited. Our future is coming. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon. I'm Matt Powers. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively.